Do you remember the day that you turned 16? Now, for some of us, I won't name any names. That day was a little longer ago than others of us, but that's okay. Fritz. But I remember the day that I turned 16, I was literally counting down the days because I could not wait to get my driver's license. I was one of those type A oldest children who made sure that I got all of my driver's education finished with. I did all my behind the wheels. I scheduled my appointment at the DMV so I could go on the day that I turned 16. And I was excited. I was pretty nervous because I really wanted to pass. And I think I was more excited than I should have been because I don't remember anybody warning me about the responsibility of getting a license, like how much gas actually costs or the problem of having insurance or the feeling that you would get when you drove past a police officer going 10 over um, and the fear of having to go home and tell my dad that I got a ticket. Like nobody warned me that that was a reality. But I walked into this test ignorant because I was thrilled. I could not wait for the responsibility of getting my driver's license. So I was probably shaking as I got in the car as a little 16-year-old. And the proctor comes and sits next to me. We, we get out of the DMV and we, we turn out, on, out of the lot on the side road. And then we're about to turn right onto the main road. And I will never forget the phrase that the proctor said. Well, you might want to use your blinker. And my heart sunk. <laughs> I was like, wait, I thought for sure I'd use my indicator, but I looked down, sure enough, there was no blinker. And you know what's running through my mind. I failed. Why do the test? I'm just going to turn around, drive back into the lot, we'll tell everybody that I failed. I'll have to go and get ridiculed for the next month at school because I failed my driver's test. Well, she doesn't tell me to turn around, and we just kind of keep going through the, the exam, and I try to do everything right. I'm trying not to be too distracted about forgetting to use my blinker. And we get back to the DMV after the test is done, thinking, well, that was cruel. Why did she make me go through that whole thing when she's going to walk out and say she failed me? She looks at my parents and says, we had a successful exam. One point off, he passed. And I could not believe what I'd heard. Like, I thought I just failed my test. And I don't know if she was just being gracious. I don't know if she just decided to forget about the whole blinker incident. But I should have failed. And she just overlooked that issue and, and gave me the green light, and I had my driver's license. Now, that's kind of a dumb story of redemption, kind of a dumb story about getting a second chance. But last week, we talked about one of the best second chance stories in all of Scripture. When God commands his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. <laughs> so he goes down to the red light district, gets down on one knee, pulls out the wedding ring and says, Gomer, will you be my wife? And she says, yes. And she goes home with him and, and he becomes her husband and they have children together and he gives her all of the blessings of being in a family, but it's not good enough. So she runs away, goes back to her old life of prostitution, goes back to sex slavery and abandons her family and, and leaves them high and dry. But then God again comes to Hosea and commands him, go back, go find Gomer, redeem her, call her back into your family. Call her your wife again. Talk about redemption. Talk about a second chance. And God's never random. He always has a purpose behind what he does. So when God commanded Hosea to go and marry Gomer, and then once again to go back and buy her back, he had a purpose in mind. He was trying to get his people's attention. 
Because Hosea wasn't just any ordinary man. He was one of God's prophets. He was to call out the sin of the people and draw them to the Lord. So when we look at the book of Hosea, last week we looked at the fun part. We looked at the narrative. We looked at the story. But tonight we actually get to look at some pieces of Hosea's sermons. Because the story became the foundation for the sermon. I mean, remember the Israelites, God rescued them out of Egypt. He takes them away from Pharaoh, brings them to the promised land, gives them everything that they could ever want, everything they could ever dream. He gives them blessing and promise and success. He gives them materialism. He provides for all of their needs. He gives them a relationship with himself. But the people say, nah, that's not what we want. They break the covenant with God. They run after all of the other gods, committing spiritual adultery and abandoning their relationship with their father. So God uses Hosea's story to try to get the attention of the people of Israel. And Hosea says to the people, you're a gomer. You've abandoned your father. You've left him high and dry. But God wants to love you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to redeem you. But you have to say yes. You have to turn to him because there's still time to repent. But if you don't repent, discipline is coming. Punishment is coming. But the people didn't listen. They did not hear Hosea's sermon. Even such a provocative account as going out to marry a pro- going and marrying a prostitute could not get their attention. And right after chapter three, here's how the Lord describes what was going on in Israel. Let me read, starting in the second half of verse one in chapter four, Hosea. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That's not what I'd call a pretty picture of the moral landscape of Israel, but that's what it looked like. And they were not obeying Hosea. They did not obey the Lord. They did not hear his message over and over again. Throughout Hosea's sermons, he uses that word that I didn't even know was okay for us to use in church, whoredom, giving a picture of the spiritual adultery that the people are committing against the Lord. But we have to remember what was going on in the culture at the time. I mean, yes, Israel, they were living these blatant, sinful, immoral lives, but at the same time, things were going really well. They were peaceful. They were prosperous. They had all of their needs provided for. They had great success. Their stomachs were full and their bank accounts were full. And they held to a theology that was a lot like many others in the ancient Near East, a strict retribution theology, where they believed that, you know, if things are going well, then God must like me. But if things aren't going well, then God must hate me. Then God can't like me. Now, is that true? Well, only to a point. I mean, God promised blessing for the people of Israel if they obeyed, but he also promised cursing, curses, discipline, if they disobeyed. But we have to remember one of God's attributes, it should be one of our favorite attributes of God, is his patience. It reminds us in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that God is patient towards us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to reach repentance. I mean, think about what that means for you and me. If we got what we instantly deserved— None of us would be alive right now. If God gave us instantly what we deserved from our own sinful behavior, then we wouldn't even be here. God has been patient towards you. He's been patient towards me, not wishing that we would perish, but giving us time to repent. And that what was going on with the people of Israel. Even though there was success, even though things were going well, he was giving them time to repent, time to turn 
towards him before he poured out his discipline on them. But the problem with Israel is they thought, you know, because I'm prosperous, because God's taking care of us, then God must approve of what's going on. But that wasn't the case. Let me read from chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit, and the more fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. We don't use the word altar, the word pillar very much anymore, but those would have been connected to idol worship, things that they built not to worship God, but to worship the other gods of the nations around them. This is saying that they pursued blatant idolatry. They worshiped what God had created rather than worshiping the creator himself. They were prosperous, but in their prosperity, they turned away from the Lord. There was an inverse relationship between their prosperity and their spirituality. And that kind of sounds a little bit like our culture, doesn't it? I mean, think of how prosperous American culture is. Think of how peaceful American culture is. We haven't had a major conflict, major war in decades. Think of the average household income. In the last 20 years, Adjusted for inflation, the average household income in our country has gone up $15,000 in the last 20 years. We're more prosperous, we're wealthier than we've ever been. But at the same time, if we look at the moral landscape of our world, it doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. There seems to be an inverse relationship between prosperity and spirituality in our world, just as it was in Hosea's. But at the same time, we have this theological movement in our world that is saying, you know, if God loves you, then he's going to give you what you want. It's called prosperity theology. One of the most dangerous theological movements in the world today, one of the most powerful movements, and it's, it's very dangerous, where these pastors will get up on stage and say, Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life, and he's going to give you everything you want. That car, that house, that vacation, that raise, just name it and claim it, and he's going to give it to you. And what these pastors are doing, frankly, is they're using their message as an excuse to live lives of opulent luxury. Because they're saying, how do you know God loves you? If you have all of the stuff that you want. So they're living lives of blatant uh, richness. It's sinful. It's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Faith is not the path to prosperity. Prayer is not the road to prosperity. And faith is not the road to fat paychecks. We don't give in order to get something from God. Jesus' number one goal is not our happiness. And if you signed up to follow Jesus so that he could make you happy and wealthy, then you're not following the right Jesus. He didn't die to make us happy. He died so that we might be saved from eternal separation from God. He died for us so that we could have a relationship with himself. He died for us so that he could bring us back to life from the dead. And as we read scripture, God never promises to make us wealthy and happy. It's actually the opposite. He promises persecution and opposition. He promises trials and hardships and pain and suffering. And obviously, prosperity theology was not invented in America in the 1980s. The people of Israel were tempted just as much with this errant theological system. They used their prosperity as a spiritual thermometer. We all know what a thermometer is. And frankly, 
we've probably had our temperature taken more in the last year than we had, have had in our previous years of life put together. We know what it does. It measures our temperature. And it's an indicator of our health. If our temperature is around 98 degrees, then we're probably pretty healthy. If it's up over 100, we know that we have an infection. But what the Israelites were doing is they were using their prosperity as a spiritual thermometer. That because they were doing well, because they had stuff, because God was taking care of them, they thought that they were okay with the Lord. And we see that in chapter 12, verse 8. It says this, Ephraim has said, and Ephraim is a synonym for Israel, ah, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Do you see the connection there? Israel is saying, I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. So that means that they can't find any sin. They can't find any iniquity in me. They were using prosperity as a spiritual thermometer. And my guess is that you and I have probably done the exact same thing. We just package it a little bit differently. It sounds like this. Oh, my stock portfolio has done really well this month. I invested in GameStop. God must be thrilled with me. Or I'm getting promotion after promotion after promotion at work. That means that God must be really pleased with how I'm living my life. Or I just landed the relationship of my dreams. God is really happy with where I'm at spiritually. I'm having so much success in my ministry. God must approve of the way that I'm living my life. Or have we ever thought the opposite? Something more like this. I just can't seem to shake this depression. God must be disciplining me. Or I can't believe I just got dumped by my girlfriend or my boyfriend. God must be angry with me. I can't believe I just lost my job again. God must be disciplining me. Have you or I ever used our prosperity as our spiritual thermometer? That's our first principle I want us to remember tonight. Don't confuse prosperity with spirituality. Don't confuse prosperity with spirituality. Now, there's something we have to understand. When something good comes into our life, is God blessing us? Absolutely. James tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of of heavenly lights. And then the opposite, if something bad comes into our life, is God disciplining us? Well, possibly, that certainly could be the case, but the correlation between the two is never automatic. Just because someone's blessed does not mean that God is approving of their lifestyle, which is exactly why David can say over and over and over again in Psalms, why are the wicked prospering? In other words, why are the evil people, the ones who have the huge houses on the beach, the beach that are taking the luxurious vacations, driving the perfect cars? There's not an automatic correlation between prosperity and spirituality. We need to be very careful that we don't confuse God's blessing with God's approval. So there are other metrics, other thermometers that we should use in our life to try to discern where am I at in my relationship with God? Where is my spiritual health? How about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is our life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit or the work of the flesh? How about the Ten Commandments, God's gold standard of ethics? Are our lives characterized by idolatry and lust and hate and deceit? 
Think about how Paul describes the Christian life as a race. Are we running the race well? Are we running it with faithfulness? Are we slacking off? Are we growing in our love for Jesus? Are we growing in our love for others? Are we growing in the degree by which we reflect Christ to the world around us? Those are all different ways that maybe we could use as a, as a metric, as a spiritual thermometer. We never want to confuse our prosperity with spirituality. But unfortunately for Israel, that wasn't the only mistake that they made. Not only did they think that God was pleased with them, but they actually took it a step farther. The blessings that God in His kindness had given to His people actually caused them to forget Him. Let me read 13 verse 6 from Hosea. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. It's interesting, the blessings of the Lord, the good things that he given to his people, they induced them to forget him. Which for us is just a difficult catch-22. Because when we look around at our life, God has given us so many good things. He's given us one another. He's given us our jobs and our homes, our families, our communities, our hobbies. We are blessed so richly. But it's so easy in the moments of prosperity, in the moments of being blessed, to forget that we need the Lord. To forget that we are desperately and daily dependent on Him. It's easy to worship the blessings rather than worshiping the gift giver. That's our second principle tonight. Never allow God's blessings to induce spiritual blindness. Never allow God's blessings to induce spiritual blindness. I don't know about you, but I found that my prayer life increases significantly when life is hard. And then the converse is true, that when things are going well, when life is quote-unquote easy, then it's much easier to forget to pray. And I think this is one of the reasons maybe why God allows trials and allows difficulties to come into our life, because it reminds us that we need to depend on Him. It's not until someone's portfolio loses 40% of its value that they realize that they daily need the Lord. It's not until we find ourselves lying flat on our back in a hospital bed that we need the Lord Maybe it's not until we lose that relationship of our dreams that we realize how much we need the Lord. God allows pain in our life for a reason. That reason is far above my pay grade. I'm not sure why. But I do know that in the midst of the pain that each one of us walk through, God promises to walk with us. He promises to work for our good, for those of us who are called according to His purpose. And I know that the last year has not been easy for many of us. It probably hasn't been easy for any of us. Maybe it's been filled with a disproportionate amount of loneliness and pain and struggle and trial and depression, anxiety. But as followers of Christ, when we're confronted with the real pain, we have a choice. Are we going to allow the pain of our circumstances to drive us toward Christ or is the pain of our, our circumstances going to drive us away? I've found in my own life that my faith grows the most in times of struggle. More than a young adult camp out, more than a mission trip, more than a no regrets conference. God has used the struggles and the trials to grow my faith more than any other time. But I still have to let him. And if you're going through pain tonight, how's your heart? Is it 
bitter and angry that God might be allowing the pain in your life? Or is it soft and receptive saying, Lord, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to grow me? How are you going to rescue me through this? May each one of us have a soft heart as we approach even the pain in our life. We want to seek God in the midst of the pain, not just begging him to fix the pain, but asking that he might grow our faith and our trust even in the midst of it. So we need to allow the pain in our life to continue to grow our faith. But in reality, life isn't always painful. We probably aren't always walking through struggles and always walking through trials. There's going to be moments of prosperity. There's going to be moments when things are going well, when maybe we feel like there's peace in our relationships, when our job is good, when we haven't been to the doctor in a while, when our stomachs are full and our bank accounts are full. And those are the moments that Hosea is talking about, when it's easy for us to forget the Lord. So what do we do? What do we do in those moments of prosperity to make sure that we don't forget the Lord? Do we just liquidize our assets and sell everything we have and go live on the streets? Possibly. But I've got three ideas on how we can guard against what I'll call blessing blindness. So here's our first guard against blessing blindness. Sabbath rest. Sabbath, it's a term that comes from the Old Testament, comes actually from the creation account. Where God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, not because God needed to rest, not because God got tired from creating the world, but he rested as a model for human rest. That we might work and be productive for six days, but then take one day off a week to rest. Sabbath is an intentional break from the busyness of life to focus on God and his people. Just one day a week. And when we think about it, that's a pretty small ask for the person who deserves all seven. The least we can do is give him one day. Now, maybe we can think of Sabbath like this. It's kind of like swimming. Now, I am not an Olympic swimmer. I've heard that Fritz has a couple silver medals. You'll have to ask him about those later. But I've done a little bit of training. And it's far easier to train in a pool than it is in a lake. Because when you're training in a pool, there are these buoys on the side. There's this line on the bottom. It's chlorine. It's clear. You only have to swim 25 meters or 50 meters before you have to turn around. It's much harder to swim in a lake. And that's kind of what the Christian walk is like. Now, when I swim in the open water, I have this natural tendency to arc to the right, which is kind of a problem because then I end up in the middle of the lake and then someone has to come rescue me in a kayak. And that's not usually a good thing. So what I have to do when I'm swimming in the open water is every 30 seconds or every minute or so, I have to pause. I have to look up and reorient myself on where I'm going. Maybe it's a tree on the other side, or maybe it's a dock, or maybe it's a person or whatever. I've got to pause, look up, and make sure I'm going in the right direction so that I don't end up somewhere I don't want to be. That's exactly what Sabbath rest is in our life. It's time for us to pause, stop looking down at the busyness in our world, and to look up. And look at our goal. Our goal is the Lord, the one that we're living for. We want to make sure that we're still running in the right direction. If we don't take time to rest spiritually, then we're just going to end up swimming in circles and we're not even going to realize it. We need to prioritize Sabbath rest. And for Hannah and I, Sabbath maybe looks a little bit different than it does for um, the average Christian. For me, Sunday is a work day. I love Sundays but it's not restful. So we take, usually a Friday is our day of rest for the week. Usually means not setting an alarm. Um, Sleeping in is a little harder these days than it once was, but that's just fine. 
Maybe we'll have some extended quiet time this time of year. Maybe we'll go up on the ski hill, spend some time with our family. And it's a break from the pressure of productivity, of feeling like we need to do things. Is there a day that you take off a week, a 24-hour window, as an opportunity just to rest? Spending time with God's people, spending time in fellowship, spending extra time with the Lord. Sabbath is not just a day for us to sleep in and play more video games. It's a day for us to spend intentional time with the Lord. And maybe that means on a Sabbath, taking a break from something like social media, by turning off Instagram and Facebook and TikTok for the day. Because there's so many things that we fill our mind with, so many things that can distract us from the Lord that, you know, that, that one day can be a day just to take a break from the things that distract us to allow us to focus on the Lord. Sabbath is an excellent guardrail to guard against blessing blindness. Well, here's another idea, another guardrail against blessing blindness. is generosity. When we realize how much God has given to us, it should really be astounding. We've received the greatest imaginable gift as Christ followers, the gift of Christ himself. And Jesus actually tells a story, a parable in his gospels about forgiveness. He talks about this man who's forgiven a billion dollar debt, a number that we can't even comprehend. His master forgives him. But then this man who's forgiven this great debt has a servant that owes him a thousand dollars. And he won't forgive, and he forces him to pay every last penny. <laughs> and we look at that, we just see the hypocrisy. It's like, dude, you're a hypocrite. But how often do we have the same spirit in our life? Because we've received the gift of the gospel. We've received the gift of eternal life with Christ in heaven. Christians should be the most generous people on the planet because we've received the greatest imaginable gift. But how often do I hold what I have with a closed fist rather than open palm? Then why is it so hard when... Somebody gives me a call and says, you know, will you donate to my summer mission trip? Or, you know, would you come and help me just for an hour on Saturday? Why is it so hard to say yes? Why do we come up with every excuse to not say yes? Well, because it's so easy to hold what we have with a closed fist rather than an open palm. And a generous heart is a great way for us to guard against blessing blindness. And it starts just with a simple prayer saying, God, how can I be generous this week? Who can I share with? Who can I bless this week? And then looking for opportunities this week to be generous. Maybe it means sharing with our finances, supporting a missionary, giving to your local church. Maybe it means donating your time, finding a friend that needs some help or helping out a neighbor or a relative. Maybe it means sharing the things that we have, our possessions or our homes. Maybe inviting people into our home or sharing a meal, sharing our food. Let's look for ways this week that we can be generous, a great way to guard against a hard heart. And here's a third way, a third guard against blessing blindness is gratitude. Those two words that we've learned since we were two years old, thank you. But every time we say those two simple words, it reminds our heart that we're not entitled. Because I think often we can have an entitlement complex. The things that we're given, we get them because we deserve them. And every time we say thank you, it reminds us that ah, I didn't deserve that. That was a gift. Thank you for sharing that. And ultimately, instead of just thanking our family, instead of just thanking our friends, we need to thank the giver of every good gift. That's the Lord. That we should spend time in our time in prayer with the Lord to carve out time just to say thank you, thinking of the ways that the Lord has blessed us and thanking him for those good gifts. Maybe it means doing something called a gratitude journal, where maybe at the end of the day, 
Uh, you just write down 10 things that you're thankful for. And not, not like shallow things. Not like, oh, thanks for my dinner. Thanks for the Swedish fish and the ice cream that I ate. Right? Something deeper than that. And instead of just saying thank you, thanking God. God, thank you for this gift and directing our gratitude to him. You know, if you're feeling a little extra grumpy these days, I know that would be none of us in this room. Maybe that'd be a great thing to do. Because when we focus on a heart of gratitude, it changes our attitude. Gratitude is a great way for us to guard against blessing blindness. And I had to guess Israel did not do a very good job remembering the Sabbath. Actually, no, they didn't. Look at Jeremiah 17. That's one of the reasons God disciplined them. I don't think they did a very good job saying thank you. They did, definitely did not do a very good job with generosity and taking care of the people in their midst that needed help. And I pray that we won't make the same mistakes. But when I look at the book of Hosea, even in the midst of the idolatry, even in the midst of the spiritual adultery, God has this message that he weaves throughout the whole book, that his love for his people is greater than their sinfulness. It's a power that will even overcome the grave itself. And uh, for our last portion here, I want to look at chapter 13, verse 14. It says this, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That probably sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? If you know 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually quotes this text somewhat loosely in that chapter. And he uses a couple weird words. The weirdest is Sheol, which kind of has a broad semantic range in the Old Testament. It can mean anything from death and the grave to hell. You see what it says. O Sheol, where is your sting? kind of an appropriate word to define death, isn't it? It's not the, the sting of like getting a burn or the sting of a yellow jacket. It's the sting that only death can provide. You know, it's that feeling of getting punched in the gut, the feeling of getting the wind knocked out of you. You know what I'm talking about? The sting of death. I remember the first time that I felt that sting. I was in seventh grade. And there was a group of us from our school, and we were singing for a concert down in southern Wisconsin. And there were a couple chaperones that went with us, a, teacher, a couple teachers and our principal. And we had the concert one night and then stayed overnight and were hanging out the next morning. The next morning, a couple of the teachers disappeared for a couple hours, and we didn't think much of it at the time. We were just hanging out. But as time went on, something didn't feel quite right, and the teachers came back, and we really knew something wasn't quite right. They walked us up these stairs into this youth room, and I still remember what it looked like. He sat down on these couches, and the teachers actually couldn't even say what they were thinking. They had to bring a pastor in to tell us that the principal had died of a massive heart attack the night before in his sleep. I still remember what that felt like. We were just with him the night before. He told us he loved us before he left, and he was gone that punch to the gut that only death can bring. Maybe you felt that in the last week. Maybe you felt it in the last year. We all know what it feels like. A feeling when a college freshman 
decides to end his life, and nobody knows why. Just found out about that a couple days ago. Feeling of missionary, father of 12 who passes away from COVID-19. Death is not a good thing. It's a result of sin. It came into the world because of the curse. It is never good. And it always leaves us with that sting. But death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have an ultimate sting anymore. It doesn't have the final say. And when Paul quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us a glimpse. He says this in verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul quoted Hosea somewhat loosely. He actually changed a word. I don't know if you caught that. Instead of saying, oh, death, where are your plagues? He said, oh, death, where is your victory? Because when Jesus was condemned to die, death thought that it was winning the game. When Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, death thought that it gained the upper hand. When the nails pierced his hands and his feet, Death thought that it was winning the battle. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. Death thought it had won. But to Telestai was not a cry of surrender. It was a cry of victory. Because when Jesus died and he was raised from the dead, he conquered sin and death once and for all so that death no longer has the final say. Death no longer has victory. That we don't have to fear even death itself. That we have a hope that transcends the grave. And when Hosea penned those words, I'm not even sure he had a full grasp of the power of his prophecy that someday Jesus was going to come and take away the sting of death once and for all. Now, it doesn't mean that death doesn't hurt. It does. Death still has a sting. But we have a hope that transcends the sting of death because death cannot win when we follow Christ. And I hope that's a hope that each one of us grasped tonight. That hope doesn't apply to the world universally. It only applies to those of us who've turned away from our sin and trusted in Christ. It's what we talked all about last week. It starts with us understanding that we're Gomer, (laughs) that we're so dirty and rotten and sinful, it's not even funny, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And at some point, we have to cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me, because Jesus saw us standing in the slave market right before we were to be sold to slavery to sin and said, I will buy you with my blood. But all of us at some point have to say yes. We have to cross over the line. We have to say, I I believe that Jesus died for me. I'm going to turn away from my old way of life. I'm going to follow him. And when we have that relationship with Christ, then we have a hope that transcends our circumstances. If there's a one-sentence summary that I want each of us to remember for the book of Hosea, here it is. It's our third and final principle. God's faithfulness far exceeds our sinfulness. God's faithfulness far exceeds our sinfulness. If you walked in the door tonight carrying guilt on your shoulder over past mistakes, 
His faithfulness exceeds your sinfulness. <laughs> we all have moments in our life where we want to click the rewind button. We want to go back and do something over again. His faithfulness exceeds our sinfulness. When there's guilt in our heart that we don't even know what to do with, His faithfulness exceeds our sinfulness. Because the gospel, it doesn't minimize our depravity. It doesn't make us better than we are. No, it teaches us that the grace of the cross is far greater than our sin. The gospel doesn't minimize the power of death, but it gives us a hope that transcends the power of death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, give us a hope tonight that transcends our circumstances, a hope that transcends even the power of death, knowing that when we have that relationship with Christ, we have nothing to fear, not even death itself, because we have a relationship with you. And we look forward to the day when we'll see Christ in eternity, where we can behold the one who gave his life for us. (laughs) What a day that's going to be. So allow us to walk with faithfulness until that day. And as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, may you just encourage a great discussion, encourage our time together. We're just excited um, that we get to be here and excited for what you're going to continue to do in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.